Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Good day, film fans. I hope this finds you safe, well, happy and filled to the brim with joy of the amazing selection of films that are both uh, in cinemas and streaming at the minute. It is that, it's that time of year, isn't it, where not to say that the rest of the year hasn't been brilliant and full of wonderful films, but it's, it's the abundance of them at this time of year around the whole, <clears throat> excuse me, around the whole for your consideration. So I don't know, that I feel like Christmas is kind of comes early with regards to being a film fan. So yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful and glorious to have the opportunity to not just watch these films, but speak to so many people associated with it. I had the funniest experience last night. I was getting the, the train home after interviewing Daniel Craig. Yep, that's coming up in a couple of weeks, folks. And I was on the train tucking into my soup from a high street takeaway shop and I got a little tap on the shoulder and it was none other than the wonderful Pippa Harris, who is producer extraordinaire and long-term collaborator with Mr. Sam Mendes. Um, she's worked on him. They've known each other since they were kids. Like, they went to school together. They used to go to the cinema together, all that kind of stuff. And they have made the most wonderful collection of films together. The last one, of course, being 1917. And their next film is Empire of Light. It's very beautiful. It's very personal to Sam. Uh, the cast is extraordinary. The score has been done by none other than Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor who tie in with this week's episode as well, who also I got the chance to speak to this week and you'll hear that episode coming up in future weeks. But um, Empire of Light is coming out at the end of January and Sam has once again uh, done an absolutely beautiful and brilliant job. And it was so nice to bump into Pippa last night to congratulate her in person and just have a good old chinwag before she got off the train at Reading. Anyway, it is a welcome return to this week's episode of Soundtracking for the fabulous Luca Guadagnino, a writer and director who always talks so eloquently and revealingly and emotionally and passionately about the music in his films. His latest project is Bones and All. The ensemble cast features Timothy Chalamet, Taylor Russell and Mark Rylance. And is I don't know, people are assuming that this is a horror film. It's, it's not. I'm not a person who will veer towards horror or, or kind of gore. There are a couple of elements within this film where I might have had to kind of just squint my eyes slightly. But for me, it's more about a kind of a romance between misfits about people who, I don't know, they find a kindred spirit. They find their outcasts and they, they find this thing. And, it you know, it doesn't have to be plain sailing, that thing. And it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. So although there are elements of horror in it, it's a, a romance, it's a road movie, it's a drama. What it is, is brilliant, I think. And it's scored, as I said, by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, or A&T, as Luca describes them. And it's with one of their cues, Violence Remains, that will begin this episode. <laughs> Thank you. 
Luca, how are you? Hello, Edith, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. I'm very happy to be together again. Oh, and I'm particularly very happy because we get to really focus and talk about the music in Bones and All, which is is fantastic. Both combination of the score, but also the choice of existing music as well. It's great. I guess the first thing was to ask is when you, I don't know, when you read the script, did you hear it sonically? Did you kind of have an idea of how you wanted it to sound or was that a journey? I I often think of the cavatina in in the deer hunter. Oh! And oh my god. Be still my beating heart. Oh my god, that's like that's the film that made the most the biggest impression on me from I mean, a very small age, younger than I should have seen the film, but it's is embedded in my brain and my heart and my soul, I think. That movie is somehow, I mean, like as a filmmaker, and this is a little digression, but as mm-hmm. a filmmaker, I know that movie has been controversial when it came out, but as a filmmaker, the seemingly capacity of Michael Cimino to be letting you be inside this world of these Russian immigration people and American at the same time, going to Vietnam and coming back, and the trauma of all this is told in ways and acted in ways that I am still puzzled how they achieved that. As a, as a filmmaker, I always dreamt to be able to make my version of that. And I haven't yet, but I, hopefully I will one day. Having said that, that cavatina and other cavatinas, for instance, anything that came out from Lenny House and Clint Eastwood in their canon, constantly haunted me in my imagination and I never tackled that Mm. so when I read the script by Dave and in the process of working with him and with Timothy as well but with Dave who I love and he's a great writer I pushed the direction of the movie toward this kind of like extreme romanticism and I use the word extreme specifically uh, given that I think this is a terminal movie and it's uh, in such ways, it's a terminal love story. So mm. extremities was a really important part of the of the deal here. So that, that was my very strong uh, uh, sonic image in my movie, more than anything else. Yeah. to this and we talked about this last time was that you've you've not gone down that kind of I know that traditional if that's a fair word to use route of of composer you know you've used an amazing music and you've had people create music for you that you know call me by your name and the, those songs by Sufjan Stevens are so oh my god I mean yeah well I, I, I when I, I I wanted I really wanted when I did my first movie, The Protagonist, mm-hmm. uh, I, worked, I worked with my wonderful uh, Walter Fasano, the editor of so many of my movies. 
And we created the soundscape for the movie that was collect a collection of pieces of music that we thought were good for the movie. The movie was a sort of like unsuccessful experiment on the meta, which I ha- I'm happy that I turned my back to the concept of meta 30 mm-hmm. years ago, almost way before it became fashionable and stupid. Uh, <laughs> but uh, already then I had my uh, crushing disappointment because the producer told us that he was had no intention on acquiring rights of the music that we wanted into the movie. And he pushed me to remove all the music and to hire a composer to write the music, a delightful man, uh, Andrea Guerra, uh, but uh, uh, completely uh, not in line with what I was intending to do. So I know that I I have not worked with composers, mostly my work, but yeah. then I was obliged to do that. And the same thing happened again a few years later when I did Melissa P., where, with, again, with Walter, that movie was about, uh, uh, it was 2005, and it was about the sexual awakening of a young girl of 17 or 16 uh, in that year. So we had created a, a collection of, of mm. music that was all about that generation, uh, in crossing over with the idea of the cosplayers, mostly. And I thought it was quite fantastic. Then we did a... We did a first time ever uh, a test screening for a movie in Italy because that was a Sony, Sony movie, a Sony Europe. Mm. And the movie rated so, so low that the company decided that one of the reasons why the movie didn't work with the audience was that there was not a unifying music score. So they again obliged me huh. to remove my musical choices and to hire a composer this time was Lucio Godoy, another very nice man, very, but again, somebody that was alien to the project for yeah. me because both movies, the protagonist and Melissa P, they were intended to be work made by using uh, original music and, and, and with a specific idea of why mm-hmm. that two different composition, like not composition, two different collection of music had to be working there. So after I did Melissa P, uh, which was a very devastating experience for me mm. uh, of lacking of control. I promised myself that never again I was going to lose control and I started to become very involved and I became a producer. And when I say producer, I mean it. I'm not saying mm. that I need my credit. I don't care. I have no ego in this. It's just that I thought like producing meant that you were driving the boat toward the right arbor in order to make sure that the resources were used in the right way. Mm. And that's what led us to be able to work in, in I Am Love with the, with the collections of music from John Adams. When it ca- happened to be that I had to do Call Me By Your Name, I fell in love with the futile devices and with Sufian. I'm, I'm that kind of mad person that can fall in love with an artist by not knowing them, but by seeing and experiencing what they do. My heartbeat was speeding fast uh, uh, when I was uh, listening to these songs by Sufian and thinking of Sufian and the beauty of Sufian. So I approached, it took a long time to convince him and he did these beautiful two new songs and he adapted for piano because piano was a concept behind I Call Me By Your Name, given that Elio was a pianist, Mm. uh, Futile Devices. Four hours now since I've wandered through your place. 
And um, in developing and trying to make Suspiria for so many years, I thought that the way to mirror uh, the Goblin mirror. score, that was a so paramount moment of progressive rock for the 70s, was to get the voice of our generation to step in and to find a different uh, sound landscape for Suspiria that could stand in front of the Goblin score, mm -hmm. which for me remains the best thing, along with Jessica Harper of Dario Argento's version of the movie. But I have Jessica Harper, I needed a great music. Uh, and that's why I, I thought of the wonderful Tom York, who did an incredible, incredible mm. job, and the score is amazing, and I really want to work with him again. But that was like, it's first time. He wasn't yeah. a composer. This time, this time is different. This time I went for composers. I know that the, the Trent and Atticus, they come from, again, rock, and they are unorthodox composers, but their career in mm. cinema is super important and, 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 and like it doesn't need any, 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 any introduction. It's like just they are probably the most important composers in film right now living. So when we approach them, and I met them online and they had and they had just the most gracious openness to the project and to me, which already was for me a delightful surprise, only because I knew how important they were and I knew how picky they were. Like they mm -hmm. don't go for a, a score like this. They choose very much. So I felt it was a very beautiful, uh, 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 you know, like first time for me. Yeah. First time working with composers chosen as score composers plus beautiful personalities. So that's my this is my actual debut in that. Wow. Bravo. What a debut. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I do think there is something, though, and I know that they are so revered and so fantastic in that world, but they do come from being rock stars, as does Tom, as does Sufjan. And I do think there's some something in that, in that they do bring some something from that experience into the world of composing. None of these people choose to compose uh, by the book. None mm. of them. They don't have a, a book of recipes that they resort to. Yeah. Even the great, 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 great composers, and I'm not going to name names, sometimes in their canon, they have to resort to a, a textbook mm-hmm. of recipes. They don't. Mm. They just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes, I think it's almost like there's a, I don't know, there's a, lot, there's a lack of fear in terms of just going there and trying things and, like you say, almost kind of ripping up the rule book in a way. That even when the film opens, and my, my, my kind of note taken from, from watching the film is, is terrible, I can hardly read my own writing, but there are some specific cues that really kind of just, um, that really resonated as well. And even from the opening, you know, the kind of, the, the, the minimalism, but it gives, it's got a, a real sense of optimism to it, I think, the, the way that the film starts, the music that's at the start of the film as well. I don't know. I just I wonder. I wanted to hear a little bit about the journey that you you had with them in terms of they got the script, they they connected with it. Sounds like they were really quite kind of clear about how they saw it to start with. Was that quite immediate with them? After we met uh, and we discussed the concept behind the script, I told them that for me this was more than anything else, as I said an extreme love story. Mm-hmm. So I asked them to think in terms of extreme romanticism. And I told them, <clears throat> remembering those cavatinas that we discussed at the beginning, that I had this idea, this musical image in my mind of a longing, solitary guitar that for me, in a way, encompassed the American landscape mm-hmm. and a sort of Americana to be our guide into the story in the movie. And I told them, like, can you start super spare and add up? Mm -hmm. And can you use guitar as your main sound? That is the only thing that I told them. Wow. And they went away and they came back to me a few weeks afterwards and they sent me like something like 12 to 15 cues that they recorded with guitar of all of them. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Of those, a couple were like immediately, they were immediately expressing images that I had in my mind. At the time, we had not started shooting yet. Oh, wow.
I told them this is the direction and again I used those two cues to work on the movie and I made Timothy and Taylor and everybody to listen to it and then we finished the movie with my editor Marco Costa uh, we wrapped the movie around the end of July and we had a first cut around the third week of August mm. which was a bit longer that must have been like in the two and a half hours, two forty minutes, two hours and forty, mm-hmm. and I send we send the script, the movie to them, and uh, in the movie, I mean, usually in this case, and also with with uh, with Tom, I didn't put any temporary music, which I think it's completely disrespectful and absolutely stupid. Yeah. So like I edited the movie dry, no music at all, except for the cues of those cues that we thought we had to put into the movie because we knew they were like the Duran Duran at the Slumber Party or mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we put just the movie, no music. And every time I felt we needed the movie to kick in and then to kick out, we just put T and A, the right, the, the initials coming in and getting out in those moments where we thought the music had to play. and then. I, I created a little like uh, a lege- legend mm-hmm. of colors uh, in which I choose 10 colors and every color was signifier of an emotion that I wanted to convey. Oh, so wow. it was like adventure, horror, abandonment, romance, extreme romance, brutality. And every color was not just alone because sometimes I put together like three colors, four mm-hmm. colors, or there was two colors, one was going away, one was coming in. And that's what I gave them. That's it. And then in time, I don't remember, but they might be more precise than I, but I was in a few weeks, we started getting these cues. One was more precise, mm-hmm. more perfect, and more beautiful than the other. And, and how, that's how we did the score. And wow. that's how they did the score. And, and that's how we then landed on the movie. I, I was thinking of like, I was thinking that the kind of like knowledge, the, the emotional knowledge of Maren's journey comes from her relationship with this young boy who is completely lost, that is Lee. But Lee, in a way, is as being lost as he is, he's also propulsive for her. Mm-hmm. So I thought that we needed to have, and she's a blank sheet where he kind of have like convoluted biography and a sort of like need of a self-expression that is like really 
convoluted. Mm. And so I thought, like, if I thought about Lee 1988 and his solitude and his disenfranchisement and his self-exclusion from the center of things, I thought that this kid might have been interested in what was the powerful experience of punk and of alternative music mm-hmm. that could come from the early 80s. And so that's why where I had this image of Joy Division, a song that was given to me by Josh O'Connor while I was uh, uh, prepping. Uh, sorry, I was. Uh, yeah, I was actually starting the preparation of the challengers and Josh gave me this piece of music and I felt like, oh, there is something about it that is very much Lee. Then I marry, I mirror that with the new order. So those two pieces of music that I, I, I added afterwards, after I got the score from, from Trenton Atticus, somehow I hope they are not considered and considerable as what I hate as an expression, needle drops. I hate it. Like <laughs> I, we should talk about it for a moment. Yeah. I, I hope that they come across as emotional landscape for the movie, like sonic landscape for hmm. the movie. And then there is the last, last chapter, which is that we were looking for an original song to wrap the movie and to accompany the doom of this character to the end and to hold them tight and to cuddle them. And, and I asked the uh, TNA, Triton Articus, <laughs> to compose a song. They did that. They did this incredible song. And at the beginning, we were discussing about having a female voice because I, I felt into the trappings of this banality that, you know, like a moment of tenderness should be women, all this bullshit. Uh, not because I don't think women are capable of extreme tenderness, but because to genderize things is not the right approach. Yeah. Uh, if I may say that, then not if you end up being destroyed <laughs> on, on internet. Uh, <laughs> but so we tried with some female voices and it didn't work. Mm. And then one day, I received an email from Atticus. Usually it's always Trent and Atticus, mm-hmm. even if one writes, but there is always the other. Yeah. But this time was directly only to me from him, no Trent. And the email said, Trent, yesterday night, 
has recorded this song, the song, his voice, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. If you love it, we'll tell him that you love it. But if you don't, we say that you, you we'd say nothing and you never have it. So he didn't know he'd sent it. He didn't know that the Atticus had sent it. No. Oh. <laughs> so I heard the song and it was sublime. Mm. And the raw tenderness of the voice, the broken tenderness of the voice of, of Trent in that song, the way he was, it made us like completely be embraced by his voice in that moment made Final so devastating and so amazing that of course I called Articus. I said, Articus, it's it's a masterpiece. <laughs> we should tell him immediately. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, this story, but that's how it went. <laughs> I think you always have a feeling like you knew. Just a minute We made it feel like home Can we talk about Kiss for a second? I love this as well, it's so exciting and you, you see his eyes light up when, you, when he gets the chance to talk about the opportunity you gave him to collaborate on this film and be involved, you know, it's the first Why time Why not? I mean, he's such a bright well, man You know, like, it's such an incredible a chance to be able to work with someone who has that kind of commitment and also that kind of savviness. You know, like I think he, the way in which he really compelled David and I to consider this moment in the Barry house to become a moment in which Lee finally in his uh, biography, find a moment of uh, likeness in mm -hmm. front of someone instead of being removed from that person through the idea of the song that he finds into the, into the house of Barry. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful. Also, I like the idea that you can find beauty everywhere. Mm. When I say beauty, I, may, I mean somehow probably uh, consolation more than beauty. I like that you are in this rotten house where this guy lived for so many years and we are basically invested in the biography of someone that has been just destroyed. And we, the movie, thanks to Timothy's idea, doesn't allow you to judge the environment of Barry, actually gives you consolence by having found among the, um, in the, in the environment of this man, this song that mm. it's the moment in which for the first time, Lee and Marin find a way to communicate in a sort of sentimental way. I think it's great. Yeah. And also I like the idea that the kiss, uh, these are like, how do you call it? Hard rock? Or yeah, yeah, glam rock. Uh, so it kind of like, yeah. It's, glam it's rock glam becomes a yeah. bridge and it channels uh, uh, tenderness. I think that all these contradictions are quite interesting to me. And that was the Timothy idea that 
that in this moment, Lee was going to dance and be extroverted, despite his uh, kind of uh, full uncommittal attitude toward her <laughs> yeah. in, until then. And did he pick the song? Was the song his idea as well? I don't want to be inaccurate. I think yeah. so, but we should mm. ask yeah. both Timmy and 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 uh, I think so, though, though Timothy and and Dave. Yeah. Duran's well in there as well. It's kind of like it's that, that's that's total choice. That I, of course, as much as it's his choice, it would have been my choice as well. Yeah, from Dave. Yeah, it's so good. I got to see them lie. I was such. I was. I was a member of the fan club when I was like fourteen, and uh, <laughs> I got to see them live last year. I was working at a festival, and they just did all the hits. You know, it's kind of like oh, oh wow, so... real. It's so great. Reflex see, and all of it. Reflex. It was brilliant. I went to see the Duran Duran when I was a kid in Palermo in 1986. I must have been 15. Mm. Yeah. So great. It's like, it's it's that kind of emotional keyhole that sometimes tunes have with you and stuff. And it's, and it's yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful. about this romance with the Q as well but you also have kind of these other characters that that kind of not break up that romance that's the backbone of a, a lot of the cues but the but Mark Rylance's character for example and um, you know when he arrives and that cue where he goes what do you smell and he's so terrifying 
He's so... I think that in that moment, uh, TNA had managed to bring this idea of the eeriness mm. of the American wilderness and the American wanderers that comes with the canon of the uh, 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 wilderness in America. Uh, I think that was just amazing. Perfect. Spot yeah. on. You know those that great painting, American Gothic? You, you have yeah. in that moment the actually sum up of exactly the feeling of that specific American, American hobo wanderer that it's specific to America and they managed to get there. to ask as well just it's not slightly off off the kilter with music but we talked about it last week which was the kind of um the, the costume design and things like that and i love how you were talking about with timothy's character the kind of almost the the co- I, I feel it almost like costumes he wears when he's almost trying to find how much he wants to give away of himself or not or explore that when it like the thundercats t-shirt and stuff like that and all those kind of things that's that's like. that's completely julia Persanti wittiness and wow. intelligence Oh. Julia is wonderful. You know, like she is this wonderful lady who has been working in fashion for like all her adult life. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and I, we worked on Call Me By Your Name for the first time. No, Bigger Splash, sorry. I, I, I invited her to, to dare to think of being a costume designer, even though she wasn't one. And she oh. said, okay. She took the, she took the challenge and she did the, the, her first movie was A Bigger Splash, which was sublime. And then from then onward, we did uh, four or five movies. We did that, Call Me By Your Name. We did Suspiria. We did this one. We did We Are, We Are. She even did a movie that I produced called Beckett. She has this incredible knowledge about youth culture. Mm. And she's also able to create a sort of bridge through epochs. Mm -hmm. So as a costume designer, she doesn't think stupidly as like, it's the 80s. We have to stick to the idea of the 80s. She actually understands how much a moment in time it is the combination of what is before and what is going to be about in front of it it's you can't crystallize that you can do that if you create a fashion collection in which maybe you want to make something about the big shoulders of the 80s and then you go like bam bam they did mm. all of them but if you want to make a movie about something uh, that it's set in a moment in, in time and in a place you have to think of past and present and future and i think in this case she managed to make sure that, that, that the, the doomed Lee, the Lee who has no future, which is a sort of no future generation that is very relevant when, it, when, it, when we talk about the end of the 80s, was kind of like she found the note of, of doom in him by making him be, as I said to you in that our wonderful Q&A in London. He's the first grunge, you know, like he's the first, representative of a generation that is going to be a sort of suicidal generation of the 90s you know like uh that 
clearly has been embodied and tragically ended with mm. Kurt Cobain. Mm. There is something about the desperation of Kurt Cobain that I think Julia brought into lead that I think it's quite fantastic. And it made me be able to use uh, in an organic way that because like you see that, uh, for instance, this is not like a, 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 an iconic uh, a graphic choice. It's really invested into the character. Mm-hmm. And when and when he's with Taylor, with, with Maren, in, in the aunt house and the sister comes to see him and she's furious with him because he's uncommittal with her and she's the little sister who wants to grow up with this older brother and the brother is constantly leaving and he can't stay there because of what how he's haunted by the past. She mocks him for this t-shirt, this shirt he's wearing that is a shirt that he might have stolen from mm. one of his victims uh, and and mock him and e- emasculate him with that and, and, and he enters the house after this quarrel he has outdoor with the daughter and the first thing he does is remove the shirt as if like this insult was hitting hard on him and mm. and kind of made him unconsciously wanting to self-hate himself which tells a lot about youth and how people can be hurt by words as much as by actions what about mark's look mark's kind of whole get up i mean he's like half kind of scout leader half kind of i mean it's just I, I mean, I like to think that uh, Mark Ryland's character, Sully, is somehow in the line of uh, the Thomas Mann character in Death in Venice, the older mm-hmm. guy who wants to be young and behaves like a young person. Mm-hmm. I like to say scout because there is something about it, like about Sully, uh, uh, like efficient dressing, but also frozen in time dressing up that it's a bit tragic and tells you about this guy who is incapable of understanding that he is not going to be able to be reciprocated anymore because he has so much lost touch with reality, even though already for Anita, it's difficult to be dealing with reality Mm. that uh, he kind of uh, is also a mask of himself. And when we made all these looks with Julia, Mark Rylance was so invested in like chiseling, this character mm. on every ways from the way in which he was talking to the way in which he was walking to the way in which he was bending his body to the way in which those clothes were weared and how those clothes could express the inner. So he went into a flea market, I guess, mm-hmm. and he found all these pins, so many pins <laughs> that he put on top of his jacket and the feather on the hat. It's beautiful when you see the organic integration of uh, talent on the actual uh, craft of making the movie. Yeah. And the books, the books, I mean, obviously she, she has, she loves to read and she works in, you know, we see how at the end she's working in a library, but there's books that are kind of pop up that you kind of catch a glimpse of, whether it's Tolkien or James Joyce and kind of those moments as well. Those are, is there a kind of, is there a deeper relevance to that? And is that kind of, I, I mean, let's let the audience decide whether that's relevant or okay. not. Okay, yeah. There is something Tolkienian uh, mm-hmm. in the quest of Maren and in the quest of Sally, I would say, yeah. and also Lee. Yeah. About James Joyce, uh, that was 1988. It's the year in which uh, John Huston, The Death, was released, movie that I think is one of my top five ever. And that was my way of imagining him. I was thinking in my mind, like, we have this lady, Mrs. Harmon. She lives alone, but she's kind of a dynamic lady. She has a family who comes to visit her now and then, but she must have like a sort of like book club family, friends in the, in the village. 
and she must be very up to date with whatever is the movie of the week and the culture of the week. And uh, she's quite decent and very put up. And she's a progressive woman. Uh, in a, a longer cut, you could see among all the pictures on the mantelpiece that she had a bust of JFK and stuff like that. But basically, wow. I thought like, okay, Mrs. Harmon knows mm-hmm. that soon uh, she will go and see in the bigger city, The Death by John Huston. And she wants to refresh herself and reading it again. And that afternoon, she might have prepared herself a tea and she might have read the, 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 on the table in the kitchen the book. And then she might have felt a bit dizzy and she might have gone, gone upstairs. And that is when she might have felt sick. Wow. And that's when she might have fallen on the ground. And that is what, when uh, Sally, who might have been around, she might have smelled the near dying woman. And that's how he went into the house. And that's how he then smelled Maren. And that's how someone Maren to the house. And that's when Maren... Uh, struggling with the concept of being in the house with this strange man must have been close to the book that now we are seeing. That is all my background story. Thank you. I think, (laughs) I hope that someone was going to pick it up. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my God. Amazing. And it's interesting sometimes when, you know, when trailers and things come out, because, you know, sometimes they're, they're made by by people who have no real connection with the film. They're kind of, you know, whatever and stuff. But what's incredible about the the last trailer that came out for the film is that if I'm right, if I'm right, this is that Timothy made it and he chose oh, that, yeah. that letter oh, yeah. of contract. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Timothy felt we had to compel ourselves to 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 deliver a, a first trailer that could be kind of um, emotional and mm-hmm. of the of the senses. And so he wanted something that was less story-driven and more emotion-driven. And he suggested this amazing song by Leonard Cohen, which I didn't know, but it's the last song that he recorded. There is some kind of desperation in that song and warmth that it's quite fantastic. It's so brilliant. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. I'm ready, my lord. I just want to say as well with Call Me By Your Name, I know I'm going backwards, but the soundtrack and the collection of music in that film is the thing that I listen to the most <laughs> in terms of, I don't know, it's kind of like I, I, I will reach for it it's so many different times in a week for whatever reason. It's just the Thank most you. stunning collection of, of artists. And yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And I don't know whether it's, you know, you, you do a film and you work so hard and you're so in it that when you come out the other side of it, it's kind of like, okay, I need to leave that for a while. And I, I never kind of, I don't want to go back there forever long, but 
But even, ever since that film came out, it, for me as a fan of it, that soundtrack is absolutely sublime and I think one of the best collections of pieces of music Thank ever. you. We, we, we were, I mean, for me, it was about the summer. Mm. It was about the hit list of the songs that summer. It was about Elio being a pianist. It was about having fun by the idea that you could put together a, a list of things that might not be immediately juxtaposable. Mm. As you can, I know you cannot say this word, but I, people understand it. But uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it means the world to me. Like, yeah, it's, thank you. it's very special. And I can't wait to get this score on vinyl. And I, got, to... I got yesterday night no. from TNA the actual album. It's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to watch the film again. Uh, <laughs> Listen, thank you so much, Luca, for your time. It's such a treat thank to you. get to. Thank you so much. And I thank you. Thanks as well for, for you know, kind of just being being so honest and picking things apart with me. I really, really appreciate it. And it's just a, a it's joy. It's easy with, the, with you, Edith. You make me feel like home, as, oh. as Trent would say. Thank you so much. Luca, thank you. I hope to see you soon. And, and um, yeah, have fun in LA. Thank you for your time. Thank I'm trying. You. Two bones and all that's destroyed by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Luca Guarnino. My huge thanks to Luca for taking the time to talk to us. Bones and All is in cinemas right now with the score available through the Null Corporation. You will hear Atticus and Trent coming up on this podcast in the coming weeks to talk about that score and working with Sam Mendes on M Part of Light. You can head to edithbowman.com if you want to hear my previous conversations with Atticus and Trent and indeed Luca. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do subscribe to our YouTube channel too for lots of bonus content. As we speak, I'm waiting for my incredibly slow Wi-Fi to upload a brand new little excerpt from the time that I spent on the red carpet for the London Film Festival gala premiere of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, where there's interviews with the entire cast. So that's going to be up there, hopefully, by the end of today. Next up on the podcast, very excited to welcome back to Soundtracking Tim Burton to discuss the music of Wednesday, his first foray into a proper TV series. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.
O2's Black Friday deals are now on. Save up to £432 on the Samsung Galaxy Tab S8 Ultra 5G from just £27.50 a month, our lowest ever monthly cost. Search O2 Black Friday. O2, we're better connected. Plus RPI plus 3.9%, £432 saving over 48 months and 7th of December 2022. 48-month device plan with linked airtime plan up to 24 months. 18 plus credit checks, eligibility in terms apply. Hey, I'm Jordan. I'm the co-founder of Arcade Media, manager of The Sidemen and host of Unbox, the podcast which brings you inside the creator economy. We've created this show honestly because there's a massive lack of resources for people in this space. With over 75% of young people now wanting to be content creators and that number going up and up and up, there's a huge gap between those who want to be in this space and actually hearing from those who are running it and making it happen. Learn from the biggest names in YouTube, in Instagram, across platforms, podcasts and so much more as we help you get in inside the minds of those who are really at the top of this space please follow like subscribe and share it with a mate so we can unbox the creator economy together